Matthew chapter 18, there's a really important story that Jesus told in response to a question. And that question was Simon Peter asking, how many times should I forgive? So, so Peter's question was directing forgiveness outward, but Jesus said, let me tell you first about forgiveness that we receive. And so he spent a, a good bit of time talking about the, the first part of this parable, and we'll, we'll revisit here in just a moment. But, but basically, he captured this idea that we receive forgiveness from God necessarily so that, or pointing to, or involving the transaction that extends that forgiveness to others. Now, that's the hard part. I, I, I'm all over receiving forgiveness from God. And apparently our culture has made that even more interesting. We live in a blame culture, right? A victim culture, a finger-pointing culture, or a, a revenge culture. I, I wrote some notes in my journal. To be a victim is in fashion, and almost everybody feels like singing the Somebody Done Somebody Wrong song for some reason or another. We live in a blame culture. When your friend gets in a car wreck, it's a toss-up whether we will first ask, was anyone hurt or whose fault was it? <laughs> yeah, we do that. We live in a revenge culture where we think about getting even a lot. Uh, statistics are incredible in this, uh, how many times we think about getting even. Road rage, doxing, workplace revenge, online revenge, at least half of the movies available at any given moment in this culture are about revenge in some way. We even have a series called The Avengers. Really? Maybe that's <laughs> why we all get a little bit of satisfaction when we think about Liam Neeson's famous quote, I have a particular set of skills. <laughs> if you haven't watched the Taken series, just give one of them three hours of your life that you'll never get back and you'll know what I'm talking about. We live in a culture that, that has learned to point fingers at each other, that has learned to, to not give an inch, whether that's politically or socially or religiously or we, we see it in Israel, we see it in our families. And what I'm beginning to realize is that we will not survive without forgiveness. I don't know if you've had this conversation in your family. I have, where family members were struggling in relationship, ultimately leading to divorce. And I said, if there's no forgiveness even in this divorce, there's no way forward. There, there's no way to co-parent. There, there's no way to, to think about each other on holidays. There's no way to share anything. There's no way to, to split up the assets. If, if there is no forgiveness, there is no future in a relationship. Because at the core of it is, is that idea of forgiveness. The key to forgiveness is the cross. And we're going to say that over and over again, but... Let me start with my definition of forgiveness. Forgiveness is giving up the right to be right. And to extend that, it's giving others the right 
to be wrong. Now, I don't say that arrogantly. You know, there's a quote that said, a whole part of forgiveness is just acknowledging that the other person's an idiot. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the idea that, that our forgiveness towards somebody else doesn't necessarily involve them being sorry about it. That forgiveness is, 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 is cast out there whether or not that person is repentant, whether or not that person is even a Christian, whether or not that person is even our friend. And the Scripture seems to go there a lot. But forgiveness has always been God's plan. I ask our Wednesday night group, um, online actually, how they have thought about forgiveness in terms of a definition. And then to layer it, when is the first example of God's forgiveness that we ever see in the Bible? And they said, appropriately, in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Adam and Eve chose to do something that they knew would dishonor God, and they, that the relationship was broken, and God had to demonstrate that the relationship didn't have to stay broken, and so He created for them a covering And Tim Keller says it this way. He says, there was the condition of nakedness and the inadequacy of fig leaves. So even then, he covered them with something that that was organic, something that would, would degrade, something that wouldn't last. And in that and through the rest of the Old Testament, he was pointing at the ultimate reality that I want you to, to, to get now and to, to keep getting all through the, 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 the comments today that the cross is where God shows us about forgiveness. The cross is where He brings His need for justice and His desire for love together, where, where wrath and mercy collide. They collide on the cross. And we're going to be looking at that throughout. Tim Keller said it this way, the key to Christian forgiveness is the cross. It's the foundation of forgiveness. It not only makes it possible for God to forgive without compromising His justice, but it also provides both motivation and model for our own forgiveness, for the way that we might forgive going outward. So anytime you study Scripture with forgiveness, you run into a little bit of a problem. There are lots of places in the Scripture where it talks about forgiveness, and a whole lot of them are like the one in Mark that I read just a little earlier, that it seems to place God's forgiveness to us in the same place as our forgiveness of others. In other words, it, it almost makes it conditional. It, it feels like it that way. In Colossians chapter 3, in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, where, where he says, uh, be kind one to another, uh, forgiving, tender-hearted, just as God in Christ forgave you. So just as. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, teach us, lead us. Father, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. So there's this, this conditional, this if, this, that, this, this sense that in so many places in Scripture... We take away the idea that if I can't forgive others, God can't forgive me. Now, please wake up for the next few sentences, because that's a definite no. Think of it this way. If God couldn't forgive me, 
until I forgive someone else, then now God is in my debt. Now when I approach the great white throne of judgment, or the the throne of judgment before Christ, we talked about that in Revelation, whatever it is, where that dreaded list of all the things that I've done is revealed, if one of those things is I couldn't forgive others, it's like God is waiting for that moment to forgive me, and I know that's not true. There's nothing I can do to earn God's forgiveness. There's nothing I can do that would place Him in my debt for forgiveness. So it's backwards. For us to think of it that way is backwards. For us to think that it is God's forgiveness of us that is dependent on our forgiveness of others, it's the other way around. We should be so overwhelmed by God's forgiveness of us that we can't help but forgive others. And yet there's these scriptures. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive you. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. How do we resolve that? How do we get to a place where we we are overwhelmed with God's forgiveness of us? And that is the motivation, that is the inspiration, that is the, the prompt for us to say, I can't help but forgive others. And I know what you're thinking. I'm thinking the same thing. There's a list rolling around in your head. Some of your lists have one name. Some of your lists have so many names that you're beginning to try to alphabetize them. But there's that place where we say, how do I forgive when I just can't, I just won't, I just can't turn loose? And on the Wednesday night crowd, we, we, we said there are certain instances where it's, it's pretty universal. If a child is hurt, you can hurt me, don't hurt my family. You can hurt me, don't hurt a child. I won't watch movies that have children being hurt. Because it stirs up in me such a rage when a child is abused, when a woman is abused, when somebody who is is defenseless or or somehow compromised is, is abused. And it stirs up in me that sense of, God, it would be a lot easier if you would just pour on your wrath right here and now as I command it. But he doesn't work that way. So how do we resolve that? Well, let's back up to the parable. The parable that John handled last week talked about that God is in his forgiveness both extravagantly excessive and excessively extravagant. In the parable, uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, Jesus in response to a story, a question, the question that Peter asked in, in chapter 18 of Matthew verse 21 Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will I, my brother a sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. And some of your translations say 70 times seven. So it's either 77 or 490. Either way, it just depends on whether they translated the Greek or the Hebrew in that particular translation. So, so it's, it's a lot. It, it, it's excessive. It's, it's, it's uh, extravagant. And then he tells a story, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts. And you probably understand the, the parable, the, the king or the master in the story had somehow 
granted a debt to this guy that some say is $6 billion, some say is in excess of the gross national product of of most of the nations on the earth. We have no idea how God, uh, how how this this man allowed this guy to accrue that much debt, but that's what the story is about. The point is that he couldn't, that, that that amount of debt is just inconceivable. And so the extravagant excessive is what's that about. Let me illustrate. Uh, many of you know that I'm an LSU fan, paid for two educations there. Not one of them is mine, but I did pay for those. And, uh, and so I followed the football team. And a couple of years ago, we had a quarterback that, that led us to a national championship, which is rare in Baton Rouge, but it's, it's not as, never mind. But yesterday or the day before, I saw a picture of Joe Burrow, who was the quarterback, showing up at his Cincinnati game with his headphones on, diamond encrusted. I'm going, I can't keep up with my AirPods. The, the pressure of diamond encrusted headphones, would just, not to mention that's a little excessive. So I, I went on a rabbit trail mentally, and I said, okay, that's headphones. What about houses? Who's got like these ridiculously Bill Gates, $125 million house, which includes a beach that he imported from the Caribbean, and a trampoline room. I don't even know what a trampoline room looks like. It's scary in my vision. Is it just the floor or the walls as well? So then I got on a trail. I said, well, what about transportation? And I first thought about people with car collections, and I said, no, that's not really excessive. Turns out John Travolta has a private jet collection. Currently with seven private jets, including a 727. And I'm going, okay. All of us are going diamond, okay. Caribbean beach at your house, why not? Seven private jets, okay, that crossed a line somewhere. And that's the point. The guy tells us a story about a guy who accrues a debt that's more ridiculous than private jets, more ridiculous than a trampoline room, more ridiculous than diamond and platinum and titanium and whatever ever the precious metals in a head, set of headphones that I would surely lose. He's trying to say this is a debt that is so extravagant, it's so amazing that no one could ever repay it. And then Jesus, in another parable, he made it a lot more personal. He said it this way in Luke chapter 15. He said, imagine a story where there was a kid who grew up in a family of him and another brother, and he started getting to to the need to sow his oats, and so he said, Dad, I know that there's an inheritance coming When you die, I would like my inheritance now so I can go live like I want to live. In essence, he said, I wish you were dead because I want my inheritance now. Father granted it. He went off predictably, wasted it, got to a place where he was out of money, out of time, out of friends, out of options, and he says, I'm going home. And this is what he said when he got home. He said, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your servant. But look at his father's reaction. Quick bring the best robe, ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. It was as if this father had been watching every day at the mailbox for his son to make it home. And he explained it this way. He said, this son of mine was lost 
dead, he's alive, he was lost, he's found. There was this celebration, and all the father knew how to do was pour out extravagant love. So Jesus explained it this way. He said he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't repay us according to our sins. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, that's Psalm 103. He's quoting. So there's this this idea that before we can really get our minds around the extravagance of us finally turning loose of something that we've got to get somebody else, giving up our right to be right, we live in a culture of blame. We live in a culture where there is no hope without forgiveness. How do we get to that place? When I was a sophomore at college, University of Southern Mississippi, I was involved with Campus Crusade, and they taught us to share our faith using a tool called the Four Spiritual Laws, and, and out of that was a, a tool called the Roman Road. But basically, it's the same thing, is that we, in our first place of, of understanding what it is to follow Christ, we acknowledge that we're bankrupt and in need of this massive forgiveness. Romans says it this way, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the payment for that sin or, or the takeaway from that sin is that we are spiritually dead, separated from God forever. We are separated from this forgiveness. But the verse goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.8 goes on to say, God demonstrates His love for us while we were still sinners, not when we'd learned to forgive others, not when we got our act together, Not when we got everything cleaned up. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The forgiveness was granted. So we're back to the cross. We're back to the idea that without the cross, we can't understand His extravagance, His excess, and we certainly can't understand any way that we could possibly forgive someone else. So God, in His plan, gave us a way to understand both His extravagance and our need to forgive others. And over and over in the Scripture, he put it in terms that made it seem conditional because they are so, so connected. So if it's not true that we have to forgive others in order for God to forgive us, then how do we understand the transaction at all? I called it in one place the freedom of 491, because if Jesus said to Peter, we don't forgive seven times, we forgive 70 times seven, then that's 490, and 491 means you quit counting. If it's your Bible says 77 times, then this is the freedom of 78. I don't know. But what's going on here is that God is saying to us, You can't possibly measure the extravagance of forgiveness that I've given you. All of your sins, all of your thoughts, the things you did do, the things you thought about doing, the things you wish you had done, that all of those things, the things that you've served, the relationships that you've destroyed, the people that you've lied to, the people that you've cheated, he said, all of those things are bundled and my forgiveness covers them. 
So why is forgiving others so hard? Jewish law at the time required that you forgive three times, right? That's, that's one beyond shame on, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Let that, that, that third forgiveness is, is what stops just before people begin to call you a fool, right? You keep on letting him do the same thing to you and you keep forgiving him. Jesus put it beyond reach. 70 times 7, 77 times forgiveness beyond anything you could ever imagine. Why is it so hard? Why do I struggle so much trying to turn loose of the inner rage I feel with whoever introduced my son to drugs? Why is it so hard? Because we don't understand the cross. God allowed Jesus to hang on the cross and he allowed all of the wrath, all of the unforgiveness of heaven to rest on him. And what he says is, Alan, as a response to that, can you open up your heart to forgive someone else? Can you possibly turn loose of the blame, turn loose of the victim, turn loose of the revenge, turn loose of all the the, the stuff that says, I've got to be right. Can you turn loose of your right to be right because of the cross? Every now and then we have communion. We'll celebrate that today. And there's no place in church where we ever model it more is that we get to come to a place where a deacon hands us a little wafer and said, this is the body of Christ. This is the body that was hung on the cross, broken on the cross, nailed to the cross, bled on the cross. This is the body of Christ. This represents all the forgiveness of heaven. This is a cup of the new covenant a cup that represents the truth that you cannot earn forgiveness even by forgiving others. You can't earn mercy. You can't earn salvation. It is a free gift that he lavished on you because of the blood that ran down the cross. The sacrifice that was needed was accepted. The wrath of God was satisfied. The need to punish evil. God hates evil. There needed to be a place where it was punished. And it was punished on the cross. I want us to end with just a few minutes of silence. Because I know we got a lot of processing to do. I do. I've already done this sermon once and I've got a lot of processing to do. And so in the few moments that we will allow just for meditation, would you think about the lavish forgiveness of God? And if you've never embraced that, if you've never brought that into your life, would you come see one of the pastors that are around? Jeff's around, Alan's around, I'm around. We're going to be standing around. And then start on your list. Receive forgiveness from God. Think about the people that you 
need to forgive. And then you and God talk about a plan. That's called reconciliation. Will a person accept your forgiveness? Will they grant it? I don't know. I love the verse in Hebrews. It says, if possible, so far as it lies with you, be at peace with all men. Doesn't always lie with you. Not always possible. But the act of forgiveness, the granting of forgiveness, that is possible. A pardon that a governor grants to a convicted criminal is still a pardon even if that criminal doesn't accept it. We are granted forgiveness. We are covered with it. And the natural extension, the natural transaction because of the cross is that we would forgive others. After you've had a chance to meditate just for a few minutes, there will be teams of deacons that are all around here. There's even a gluten-free station somewhere in the back. Just approach them at your leisure. We're not trying to make lines or, or any kind of order. When you have finished praying, Approach one of these deacon teams and receive the body and the blood of Christ. Father, accept our worship. Thank you for your forgiveness. Teach us to forgive others. Next week, Father, as we talk about teach us to forgive ourselves. Help us to learn how mighty and powerful, how loving and compassionate and graceful you are as you cover us with your forgiveness.